I'm Susie Anetta, Editor-in-Chief of Design Anthology, and on today's episode of the podcast, I'm sitting with respected architect, artist and art collector William Lim in his private art space in the Wong Chokong neighbourhood of Hong Kong. wanted to start talking to you or start this conversation maybe at the very beginning and you as a child yes uh, and perhaps when it was that you first even had the idea of being an architect or studying architecture when was that aha moment um actually as a child i i you know was really in love with art and i used to kind of draw and paint all the time um, but the idea of being an architect really didn't come about. I mean, I think as a young person back then, it's not as kind of focused as the young people now that I meet. Uh, I pretty much went to high school. I went to one year of high school in the U.S. And that, that was the time when I have to apply for a college that I started to think about what profession I should apply for. And that was really the beginning of kind of looking into what architecture was about and uh, yeah. and you eventually went to study at Cornell uh, which is also where your wife studied and both of your sons <laughs> right. and both of their wives <laughs> one of the wives one of the wives <laughs> sorry but a, a fair proportion of the whole family are not only architects but also Cornell trained architects <laughs> I'm curious to know what drew you to Cornell specifically I mean it has obviously an incredibly good reputation um, as an architecture school but I wondered whether it was just the reputation or maybe something about the curriculum and the way that they were teaching architecture that you were drawn to. Right. Well, I mean, I think the first impression was the campus visit, and it was a day like like today. I mean, it was beautiful. The campus was really beautiful, and people were very nice. And really, that was the, you know, what drew me to to Cornell. Um, and I had that at the time, I didn't really know too much about architecture. I know that it was, you know, the top university that offers architecture. Um, but before I really started, you know, first year, I really had very little knowledge about architecture. I think nowadays, uh, students, I, I also help interview students and they have a full portfolio of, you know, architectural drawings, or, you know, when they were applying to university. Whereas back then, all I had was a bunch of paintings. Uh, I had not taken any architecture courses. So I, I think I was quite lucky to be admitted. Um, and uh, yeah, so my first, you know, encounter with anything architectural was when I started school. Of course, you know, as a, as a kid, you would travel and you would, you know, visit architecture and buildings and things like that. But I think what, um, what uh, you know, what were interesting uh, to, 
tourists and travelers in terms of architecture might be very different from what you know you're being taught at university and what are significance in terms of architectural development might not be the same significance as the tourist kind of destinations. Right. And so you you just mentioned traveling as a child, and I know that you've continued traveling into your adulthood and and frequently will visit places and, and obviously sort of do these almost pilgrimages, I suppose, <laughs> to visit architecture, as, as many architects do. Yes. So I'm, I'm curious to know uh, who, who those architects are that you really admire and whose work would you travel and go out of your way to visit and learn from? Right. So uh, I studied in the 70s. Um, so at the time, it was really kind of, um, you know, focusing on the international movement, modernism, um, and um, I studied very closely ar- architects like Frank Lloyd Wright and Corbusier uh, and Mies van der Hoel. You know, so those are the main kind of the three kind of architectural masters. Um, and then, of course, there are like Alpha Alto and you know other also very important. Um, artists you know in the Bauhaus and international movement so um, to me I still think that way so uh, so when I travel um, I would you know go out of my way to see a building that's done by you know any of these architects so I you know one trip would be to go to Ronchamp and look at the chapel um, another trip would be to drive. I, I remember I drove with my son Vincent, like for four hours to go to Falling Waters. Um, I'm so <laughs> <and> jealous. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so um, you know, these works by these architects are definitely very important uh, to me. Uh, and of course, they have kind of um, had a lot of influence also with con- you know contemporary architects. So. Um, so I would also go drive a long way to see, you know, a project by Tsumto, you know. So I think um, there's certain kind of interest and, and linkage between, you know, the works done in the 50s, 60s, 70s and works done nowadays. Could you pick a favorite building? Is that a difficult question? Um, to me, I would pick Ronchamp as my favorite building. Of, of course, I've seen many of uh, Corbusier's projects. I've been to Chandigarh. Again, one of those trips that you went out of your way to go there uh, and, and saw it. It was wonderful. And, and after seeing you know, a few of his projects, uh, like um, also like Villa Savoie, um, so I start to um, you know, have a much better understanding of his work. But then Ronchamp is one of those that you know, to me, kind of culminate all these um, in- interesting aspects about him. And, and, and I think, to me, what strikes me most is the aspect of incorporating almost art and sculpture into architecture, uh, which is also something that is very dear to me. Um, and I think seeing Ronchamp and, and the way that, you know, the whole building is almost sculpted, um, but not without reason. I mean, every move has to deal with, you know, the sun, the space, the, 
you know, the environment, um, the approach, you know, the exterior, almost like exterior, interior spaces, interlinkage and all that. So everything was done very beautifully integrated with the environment and also has a very, you know, sculptural, artistic and architecture aspect. So to me, that is one of my favorite buildings in the world. Oh, I'm still to get there, actually. <laughs> Um, but after studying in the U US, you, you know, obviously came back to Hong Kong and you've spent, um, aside from travelling, you've spent most of your career working from here. I'm curious to know um, if there's a favourite building that you could name in Hong Kong. Is there one in oh. particular that you find quite <laughs> inspiring or perhaps um, symbolic or reflective of the city's spirit? It's always the same answer for me. So my favourite building is the City Hall. Um, in central and I think it is you know it's still one of those buildings that I I, I would go back and and see and and it really represent a certain kind of um, you know it's it's a Bauhaus international you know stroke international uh, style uh, and it really it's not just a building it's actually a complex and it has uh, it has the courtyard it has the low rise, it has a high rise. Uh, it had a relationship to the water, although or, or, or the water is no longer there. Um, so it was really, and, and it's not really about maximizing the, the GFA, which, which is, you know, the, the, the biggest problem with Hong Kong is everything now is built to the limit and, and maximizing it. Whereas there was a a certain time and spirit that that was not the most urgent thing and I think it it shows that you know architecture should not be about maximizing the site and maximizing you know the GFA. I'm, I'm really glad that you raised that and I, I would like to come back to that and, and perhaps touch on a few of the other challenges um, than an architect would face working in Hong Kong in particular because it is such a unique city from that perspective. Um, what I d did want to mention is that, you know, obviously there are a number of highly qualified and talented architects living and, and working in Hong Kong, but I think perhaps because of the limited GFA, so many have been almost forced into practicing interior design more than actually building. Uh, and you are one of the exceptions to that. I mean, you, I think, have interior design within your practice, but you are actually still an architect and practice as an architect. And I'd like to talk a little bit about that and maybe how on earth you've managed to continue to do that for so long and maybe what some of the challenges, what other challenges you may have faced over the years. Okay, well, like, I, I guess probably it's because I'm Old, old enough and older than a lot of the architects here <laughs> that I get to do many different things. Um, so uh, we actually started the firm in the 19, early 1993. That was the first uh, building boom uh, in China. Um, and um, I remember there was a time where um, 
there were a lot of work, both interior and architecture, going on in China. Uh, I, my previous job was working for a Hong Kong developer, so I was um, doing architecture at that time. And then when I switched over to, to, start, it, to start my own firm, um, we were also asked to do some architectural work, but, but not in Hong Kong, but ma in mainland China. So over the years, uh, I have continued to um, work on buildings, um, both here and in uh, Southeast Asia and in China. Uh, and even in Japan, we were doing at one point some kind of smaller buildings for Nike. Um, so over the, the time, I have been able to um, get involved with architecture uh, quite closely. Um, and even some of the projects that we were not hired as architects, we were actually hired as interior designer. Um, but the owner knew it, um, you know, knew to get the interior design uh, very on in the project. And we pretty much um, worked together with the architect to, to, you know, to change the architecture to adapt to the interior. I think East is a very good example of that, that you know, we were hired by Swire uh, while they were planning the architecture. So pretty much uh, the concept was to do it inside out. And we pretty much reshaped the room module um, to fit you know, a, a nice interior uh, concept. And then from the room module, it was turned um, into the architecture. Um, and then, um, so everything was um, designed inside out and, and with the interior as the focus. And of course, certain elements, um, we, we, you know, for the interior also integrate very strong um, interior architecture, like the, 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 the grand stair, we pretty much um, plan it together with structure and all that. So it was done pretty much like an interior project. Um, and and I, I always argue the point that, you know, in some of the architects that I, I really admired, you know, like Kabuzi or Frank Lloyd Wright or, or Alva Alto, they would never let anyone else do the interior. I think it's only in recent years that 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 profession has been split into two. Um, so I think, um, you know, in, in my own concept, uh, the perfect project for me is to do both the interior and architecture. And although that doesn't come um, all the time, I think we have enough understanding uh, being an architect um, of the of the structure and mechanical systems, a lot of time uh, we start to shape um, projects that are we, our role as interior, but we start to shape the architecture, and probably that drove a lot of architects crazy, also. But then we also got a lot of architects who like to work with us because we understand architecture. And, and I always wanted the interior to be an extension of the architecture. Uh, so we actually work uh, on the Marina Bay Sands with Moshe Safdie. And he was kind enough to also 
you know, recommend us and bring us in for his project in China, in Chongqing, and which is about to complete probably uh, by the end of this year. Uh, so it's another uh, very large project where he is the architect and we are the interior designer. Oh, that's so interesting. I'm really glad that you raised that. There's a couple of really interesting points in there. Um, and I th before we sat down and started recording, you and I were chatting a little bit about um, some of the other challenges that we face here in Hong Kong. And I guess uh, one in particular that I guess has been brought to light, so to speak, because of the current situation that we're in. Um, and we, we were talking a bit about these sort of curtain walls and the glass facades of buildings here in Hong Kong. Could you maybe, you know, talk about that and, and unpack that a little bit more for us? Yeah, I mean, I have been um, quite perplexed by the uh, curtain wall buildings, uh, not only in Hong Kong, but in, a, in almost everywhere in the world. You know, I would go to a place... Uh, in a hotel, stay in a hotel, and I would try to open the window, and you cannot. And and it's really um, annoying, and it seems like it's a result of, um, you know, everywhere wanted to promote this idea of the curtain wall. And even in Hong Kong, you would get, in, the developer would get incentive if they designed the building with a curtain wall, which almost in a lot of cases, it means that windows that are fixed and not openable, there may be a very small percentage of openable windows, maybe more in terms of emergency, um, and it's integrated with a, an artificial ventilation system. Um, and um, so to me, that is absurd. And also, I, I just could not um, understand the fact that everywhere in the world, from Alaska to Miami to, you know, Africa, everyone would use glass, you know, cover the building, you know, totally with glass and expect that to be um, the most comfortable environment. Whereas, you know, when I was studying architecture, of course, we, we studied vernacular. We understood that, you know, in certain places, architecture uh, are, are designed certain ways because of the climate. Um, so you don't need to crank up the air conditioning if you design it properly with shading and, and screens and all that. But I think in the last 30 years, that has all been forgotten and everything became a curtain wall structure. And to me, that's very annoying. And, and, and um, so I, I try my best when I do design buildings to convince the owner to please maybe add in some openable windows um, to, um, you know, to allow a, a chance for natural ventilation. Um, so when we were doing uh, H Queens and also H Code, uh, both buildings, although it's curtain wall, there's a big part of it with, where we can open the, the window. And I think now with COVID-19, it's proven that, you know, everyone wants to open the window. And I, I think going forward, um, the buildings that you cannot open windows will suffer because, you know, who would want to be in a building that you cannot let in natural ventilation? Absolutely. And you know, as we were sort of saying before that, you know, it's it's widely understood that buildings and 
the built environment is responsible for much of the energy consumption uh, across the world. And obviously, you know, we're aware that there is a climate crisis and whether you believe that's man-made or not, obviously the fuels that we're using are not sustainable. And that there is, of course, a shift towards buildings that are more passive and can be naturally ventilated and, and naturally um, climate controlled. But uh, it seems that Hong Kong perhaps is a little bit behind even other countries in Asia, which is a shame. Would you, would you mm. agree with that? Um, in I, terms of, I guess, uh, bringing in rules and regulations and, and supporting that kind of architecture? Yes. Well, I think there was a certain... Um, you know, it, you know, incentive for like greening of buildings or providing certain uh, climate screening or, or sunscreening and all that. But that, to me, is done very um, superficially, almost as because of the density of the city, um, the distance, you know, the the and the and the maximizing of the the site condition and the GFA that, you know, there's very little room left to do kind of solar concept buildings in Hong Kong, which I think it's a shame. Um, and I, I, you know, when we, we do projects in Southeast Asia to, or in, you know, in, in China and all that, and, and that, that is, it's not as stringent and the government are really trying to give incentive to this kind of um, architecture, whereas I, I feel that in Hong Kong, it's always been, you know, certain regulations and certain limitation that make you not able to do projects like that. Mm, interesting. Um, I, I think there's something else that I've noticed, I guess, going back to um, architecture in Hong Kong particularly, I suppose, that over the last, say, few decades, I, perhaps, I guess perhaps the, the landmark project was when Zaha Hadid won the project for, you know, the, the peak lookout, I think mm. it was called, which was never built, but she mm -hmm. won the project. Um, and I feel that ever since then, you know, there's, it's, an, it's an international phenomenon, but in Hong Kong it's maybe more visible, these star architects coming in and, and sort of building rather large monumental projects and I wondered how you felt about that when, when someone from outside of the city who doesn't understand the scale or the pace or the, the culture comes in and builds something, do you feel that that adds something to the city and the landscape or do you feel that sometimes there is a disconnect there? Um, well, I think in a place like Hong Kong, I think the idea of disconnect is totally fine and acceptable. And I think, I always think that the, the, the skyline of Hong Kong is beautiful, but then when you analyze each building, it's some of, there are some very ugly <laughs> buildings there. So in a way, it, it's, a, it's almost like this contrast between different projects uh, that makes the city interesting. And a lot of time when we, when I was studying architecture, we always, you know, talked about the context. But in Hong Kong, it's almost impossible because the city is moving and changing so fast that your contract, your context will be gone within, 
you know, like five years time, like in this studio, we're going to lose the view yeah. outside of the window yeah. in five years time. You can so probably hear the construction <laughs> noise in the background. <laughs> yeah. So if you, if you were designing, you know, with the view in mind, then that context is only there for a few years. So, so I, I think that in, in that sense, I think a city that has, you know, kind of iconic projects and architects and all, I think it's fine. Um, but the problem is I think these, uh, these unique architecture should be able to be constructed properly and to really kind of be, be these masterpieces, be these unique gems, then I think it will be totally fine. Um, but then if they are not done that way, if they were kind of the intention of the designer was never fulfilled, um, and um, which I think you can also name many projects, you know, that are really done like that, and it became, you know, a, a heartache for the architect, and it became an eyesore for the city, and I think in those cases, it's really unfortunate, and it's, you know, and, and also for a, a, an architect to repeat the same architectural language in every city in the world. I think that is criminal. Mm. You've raised a couple of really interesting points there. Um, and I have two questions to come out of that. First of all is uh, you were talking about the fast-paced nature of, of Hong Kong and, and how quickly it changes, uh, which, you know, I think for any of us that live here makes it so unique but as an architect and someone who's involved in building and and changing a well being involved in a ch constantly changing landscape and skyline is incredibly challenging i imagine uh, i've had conversations with architects from around the region who've perhaps gone and studied in say the us or in europe and then they've come back to whether it be hong kong or bangkok which of course all have their own unique contexts and i'm and i'm wondering how you felt when you first came back to Hong Kong after studying and whether you felt that the education that you'd received had really prepared you for what was happening here because I, I can't imagine that it could. I mean, Hong Kong is so different from that part of America. Uh, yeah, how, how did you approach that? Did you just kind of throw everything away and start afresh or did you find a way to integrate that into a practice that made sense in Hong Kong? Right. Well, actually, I think I'm still very thankful for my education uh, in the U.S. and at Cornell. I think what we were taught is not to do things one way, but to solve problems in many ways. So I think, um, in a way, uh, when I was studying, we learned about context. We, we learned about um, integrating like local uh, vernacular into our project. So um, when, when, you know, some of the projects we were doing at the time was, I, I did both of my thesis, uh, graduate thesis for my uh, undergrad and master on Chinese architecture, and my sites were both uh, in, from Hong Kong. So in a way, um, even as a, as a student, I was um, kind of, kind of researching on how to integrate kind of contemporary concept into the Hong Kong vernacular. Um, so um, to me, I think that has actually, even t till now, I think some of my um, 
principles uh, when, of, of solving design uh, still came from um, my studies at Cornell. And I think that with that in mind, then I think we were, we were taught to solve every situation as a unique problem and, and try to find solutions to that. And I, I think, you know, with that kind of thinking, then um, we can be anywhere and we can be solving the problem for that city. Mm. And a lot of, you know, graduates from, Cornell actually went, I, I'm, I'm not just saying about Cornell, but I think a, a lot of architects, American train or, or you know, European train, and they're working in different parts of the world. And I think the important thing is to, not to impose uh, a type of architecture in that city, but it's really to try to solve the problem by using what is local to that place and, and try to integrate your project into that, that environment. Um, and I think now when we're talking more and more about the, the environment, the like, you know, LEED uh, certification and all that, and a lot of them are starting to refocus on that kind of architecture that the material you use are not imported from, you know, a few hundred miles away or, or, you know, from the next continent, but you're trying to, you know, build with locally sourced material. You try to reduce their car carbon footprint and all that. And I think it's all related. It's all coming back to, hey, look, let's look at architecture not as an international kind of cookie cutter, but let's look at it as a local issue and try to solve it, you know, for the local, for the city that you're in. Well, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and going back again to what you were saying before, I thought it was really interesting how you were saying that architects, I guess when buildings don't ex get executed in the way that you would hope or how you've designed them, that they become you know, I guess a, um, a bit of a heartbreak for the architect and an eyesore. I don't know if those were your exact words, but mm -hmm. an eyesore for the, you know, in, in the community. Um, and it, it sort of reminded me of something I was thinking about last night, actually. I just started reading Michael Salkin, uh, who I'd never read before, but I guess because of his recent very sad passing, I thought it would be a good time to start reading his work. And he was also talking about this relationship between architects and clients. And obviously most creative people are limited to some degree to what they can do when they are constrained by clients. Um, hopefully not constrained mm -hmm. by clients, but when they're constrained by clients, um, there is a limitation there. And I was thinking actually that it's a little unfair that architects are usually the ones at the end of a critique, critical writing, but actually the clients aren't necessarily the ones that receive that critique. <laughs> um, and I wondered whether you had any thoughts on that. I mean, have you, obviously don't, we don't want to talk about specific clients, but have there been projects that have broken your heart over the <laughs> years? Anything that you want to talk about? Uh, definitely. I mean, I think as, uh, I, I would say in our, I mean, we've been around for like 20, since, since 2000, no, since 1993, so almost 30 years. Um, we have had very good luck working with some really good clients. I mean, even like from the very beginning, uh, we worked with Nike 
uh, we, they pretty much found us, you know, out of nowhere and, and trusted us and, and started working with us. So we're, we're, we're doing a series of very interesting projects. At the time, you know, it's unusual for, for Hong Kong or Asia to do projects like that. We were looking at, we were doing a lot of office uh, projects pretty much um, as a very free type of office environment. Um, and of course, you know, like over the years also, Hong Kong has gone through a lot of ups and downs. We have to face a lot of financial challenges. And then with that, you have to find work. I mean, I, you know, I, I remember, you know, times when I had to call everyone I knew and try to find a project. And, and with those projects, of course, some would be terrible. And, and some of those clients that, you know, we were dealing with were terrible clients. Um, and, um, and I think every, um, every designer or architect, I'm sure, have gone through that phase. And even with my sons, I think they are dealing with great clients and terrible clients. Um, I think over the years, you just have to learn how to avoid the bad clients. Um, and also, like, I, I, I almost think that you can smell trouble coming, and you try to, um, first is you try not to get yourself involved in projects like that, but if you're already involved, is really try how best to solve the problem and, and try to make the best use out of the project. And, and I also feel that a lot of time, we cannot just only blame the clients, but also, the architect might have not done your full job, or you not, might not have given the client what they were looking for. And, and that's where a lot of the conflict uh, comes in. Um, so now, more and more, we try to find projects and clients that are understanding of what we do. So a lot of time when I met a new client, I would say like, what, why do you want to hire us? And do you know the kind of projects that we're, we're used to doing? And if, if the um, kind of, if we were not thinking the same language, then we might as well not get into a project like that. Um, and I, I also think that if you are sincerely, you know, trying to solve a an architectural problem, uh, not by imposing your own view, but try to look at it as a project that I always feel that projects have a social responsibility also. A an eyesore is gonna be bad for the city for a long time. So if you try to impose something good for the, for the city, for the community, and at the same time, you know, something positive will also um, be profitable for the client. Um, and I think if you think, of, if you see with the same wavelength, then I think the chance of getting a bad client or to you know, have a very difficult project can be reduced. Um, and also I feel a lot of time, it's really the communication between the architect and the owner, that's very important. A lot of trouble we found before 
was when we didn't get to present directly to the owner that we were dis presenting to his subordinate or, or the team that are trying to read his mind, uh, which is something very Asian and very Hong Kong. And that's when we get into the most trouble because the owner didn't know what we were thinking and we didn't know what the owner was thinking. And so we try to also avoid that kind of situation. And I guess with seniority, <laughs> maybe people start to uh, respect me. And, and when I say I want to present to the owner, uh, they would try to arrange that. But I guess with a young firm, with you know, they would tr they would face more um, difficulty. But it's a step by step process, and it it took me like thirty years to to be able to find better clients. Which is um, we still have, we still run into um, bad clients when it, once in a while. But we try to minimize that. I think that's really great advice for younger architects. Thank you. I have one more question, um, and it's kind of hard to avoid, I suppose, given the situation that we're in. We've talked a little bit about hardship and um, challenges and struggles, I guess, throughout anyone's career in any industry. Uh, but at the time of recording this, we're sort of, I guess, we don't know, somewhere in the middle of this pandemic and, and things are starting to look up here in Hong Kong, thankfully. But I am curious to know how uh, it's whether it's changed the way that you work as an architect, whether it's changing the way that you're designing, but also maybe even how you're working with your team. I mean, obviously many people around the world at the moment are being forced to work from home. Um, how have you kind of overcome that? Has that been a challenge? Has it been quite an easy transition? And, you know, do you think it will change the way that you design buildings and spaces, interiors in the future? Mm, well, yeah, well, first, um about working from home. So we did f uh, have about one month, I think it was the month of April, that we pretty much, the office was working from home. So everyone that, um, what we did was people can come in um, alternate days and, and kind of split the office into two groups. And for people that really want to work from home, we find a way to do that. Although I think, um, for architecture, it's really a team type of project. So it would become uh, more difficult to um, work from home. Um, our clients were all very understanding that we couldn't travel. So we're very used to um, kind of communicating with, uh, you know, with, with WhatsApp, with, um, with kind of uh, video conference, uh, project, you know, meetings and all that. So I think uh, that is going to maybe change the way people work in a more positive way, so that you don't need necessarily to be face-to-face -face, um, all the time, that you could actually save um, energy and tra traveling time by having some of these um, online discussions. Um, the way uh, we would design, definitely it would change because I, I think the attitude about the environment, about uh, health, about um, just the, the, the buildings itself, it's going to change. We had projects that um, uh, we were working on, 
um, like before the, the, the virus. And the client would say, oh, like nobody would, in this weather, would want to sit outside um, for dining. And then immediately after the, the project, they were con uh, about after the virus, started, they were all convinced that, oh, people are going <laughs> to want to sit outside for dining. So it makes our argument a lot easier to, to be convinced um, to the client. So um, I think going forward, I, I, I also feel that, the, of course, it's a very bad time, but it also is a time where we can reevaluate and rethink about a lot of things. Uh, and uh, so I think if we, you know, remember this hard time and try to apply it and look at it more positively, it's gonna maybe have a very positive, you know, attitude for, for the world later on. You know, like we have client, we have friends in the US that we would either meet and have you know we would travel together, or we would just email once in a while and say hi, how are you? Are you still alive? But now with this thing, we started to do Zoom kind of gathering among clients and among friends, and in a way, it brought us really closer together. It it brought family closer together, and and I think this kind of experience, although. Um, you know, hopefully after this virus is over, we would still remember that we need to stop and smell the roses. And I think that maybe that will enrich our life. I hope so too. I, d I just want to ask one more. I know I said that was <laughs> the last one, but I, I just want, I'm very curious to know where will be the next place that you travel when you're able to? What's at the top of your bucket list? <laughs> <laughs> uh, we were planning uh, some really interesting trip that was supposed to be end of, no, beginning of next year. We, we were planning a cruise up the Nile. Um, wow. And uh, so I think, I don't think we can do it end of, or, or beginning of next year, but we have moved that to um, beginning of 2022. Okay. Yeah, but hopefully before that, there are other places that we'll be traveling to. I hope so too. And we look forward to seeing your photos. So I just wanted to say thank you so much, William. It's been a pleasure to, to sit here and chat with you this afternoon. And um, yeah, thank it's, you so much. It's a wonderful time to chat with you. And, and yeah, this is a great opportunity. Thanks, William.